Chapter Eight of Scenes from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter Eight of Scenes. Doctor's Commons. Walking without any definite object through St. Paul's Churchyard a little while ago, we happened to turn down a street entitled Paul's Chain, and keeping straight forward for a few hundred yards, found ourselves, as a natural consequence, in Doctor's Commons. Now, Doctor's Commons, being familiar by name to everybody, as the place where they grant marriage licenses to lovesick couples, and divorces to unfaithful ones, register the wills of people who have any property to leave, and punish hasty gentlemen who call ladies by unpleasant names. We no sooner discovered that we were really within its precincts, than we felt a laudable desire to become better acquainted therewith, and as the first object of our curiosity was the court, whose decrees can even unloose the bonds of matrimony, we procured a direction to it, and bent our steps thither without delay. Crossing a quiet and shady courtyard, paved with stone, and frowned upon by old red-brick houses, on the doors of which were painted the names of sundry learned civilians, we paused before a small, green-bazed, brass-headed nailed door, which, yielding to our gentle push, at once admitted us into an old, quaint-looking apartment, with sunken windows and black-carved wainscoting, at the upper end of which, seated on a raised platform of semicircular shape, were about a dozen solemn-looking gentlemen in crimson gowns and wigs. At a more elevated desk in the centre sat a very fat and red-faced gentleman in tortoise-shell spectacles, whose dignified appearance announced the judge, and round a long green-baize table below, something like a billiard-table without the cushions and pockets, were a number of very self-important-looking personages, in stiff neckcloths and black gowns with white fur collars, whom we at once set down as proctors. At the lower end of the billiard-table was an individual in an armchair and a wig, whom we afterwards discovered to be the registrar, and seated behind a little desk near the door, were a respectable-looking gentleman in black, of about twenty stone weight or thereabouts, and a fat-faced, smirking, civil-looking body, in a black gown, black kid gloves, knee-shorts, and silks, with a shirt-frill in his bosom curls on his head, and a silver staff in his hand, whom we had no difficulty in recognising as the officer of the court. The latter, indeed, speedily set our mind at rest upon this point, for, advancing to our elbow, and opening a conversation forthwith, he had communicated to us, in less than five minutes, that he was the apparitor, and the other the court-keeper, that this was the arches court, and therefore the council wore red gowns, and the proctors fur collars, and that when the other courts sat there, they didn't wear red gowns or fur collars either, with many other scraps of intelligence equally interesting. Besides these two officers, there was a little thin old man, with long grisly hair, crouched in a remote corner, whose duty, our communicative friend informed us, 
was to ring a large hand-bell when the court opened in the morning, and who, for aught his appearance betokened to the contrary, might have been similarly employed for the last two centuries at least. The red-faced gentleman in the tortoise-shell spectacles had got all the talk to himself just then, and very well he was doing it too, only he spoke very fast, but that was habit, and rather thick, but that was good living. So we had plenty of time to look about us. There was one individual who amused us mightily. This was one of the bewigged gentlemen in the red robes, who was straddling before the fire in the centre of the court, in the attitude of the brazen colossus, to the complete exclusion of everybody else. He had gathered up his robe behind, in much the same manner as a slovenly woman would her petticoats on a very dirty day, in order that he might feel the full warmth of the fire. His wig was put on all awry, with the tail straggling about his neck. His scanty grey trousers and short black gaiters, made in the worst possible style, imported an additional inelegant appearance to his uncouth person, and his limp, badly starched shirt-collar almost obscured his eyes. We shall never be able to claim any credit as a physiognomist again, for, after a careful scrutiny of this gentleman's countenance, we had come to the conclusion that it bespoke nothing but conceit and silliness, when our friend with the silver staff whispered in our ear that he was no other than a doctor of civil law, and heaven knows what besides. So, of course, we were mistaken, and he must be a very talented man. He conceals it so well, though, perhaps with the merciful view of not astonishing ordinary people too much, that you would suppose him to be one of the stupidest dogs alive. The gentleman in the spectacles, having concluded his judgment, and a few minutes having been allowed to elapse, to afford time for the buzz of the court to subside, the registrar called on the next cause, which was the office of the judge promoted by Bumple against Sludbury. A general movement was visible in the court at this announcement, and the obliging functionary with the silver staff whispered us that there would be some fun now, for this was a brawling case. We were not rendered much the wiser by this piece of information, till we found by the opening speech of the counsel for the promoter, that under a half-obsolete statue of one of the Edwards, the court was empowered to visit with the penalty of excommunication any person who should be proved guilty of the crime of brawling or smiting in any church or vestry adjoining thereto, and it appeared, by some eight-and-twenty affidavits, which were duly referred to, that on a certain night, at a certain vestry meeting, in a certain parish particularly set forth, Thomas Sludbury, the party appeared against in that suit, had made use of, and applied to Michael Bumple, the promoter, the words, You be blowed, and that, on the said Michael Bumple, and others remonstrating with the said Thomas Sludbury, on the impropriety of his conduct, the said Thomas Sludbury repeated the aforesaid expression, You be blowed, and furthermore desired and requested to know whether the said Michael Bumple wanted anything for himself, adding, that if the said Michael Bumple did want anything for himself, he, the said Thomas Sludbury, was the man to give it to him, at the same time making use of other heinous and sinful expressions, all of which Bumple submitted 
came within the intent and meaning of the act, and therefore he, for the soul's health and chastening of Sludbury, prayed for sentence of excommunication against him accordingly. Upon these facts a long argument was entered into, on both sides, to the great edification of a number of persons interested in the parochial squabbles who crowded the court, and when some very long and grave speeches had been made pro and con, the red-faced gentleman in the tortoise-shell spectacles took a review of the case, which occupied half an hour or more, and then pronounced upon Sludbury the awful sentence of excommunication for a fortnight, and payment of the costs of the suit. Upon this, Sludbury, who was a little red-faced, sly-looking ginger-beer-seller, addressed the court, and said, if they'd be good enough to take off the costs, and excommunicate him for the term of his natural life instead, it would be much more convenient to him, for he never went to church at all. To this appeal the gentleman in the spectacles made no other reply than a look of virtuous indignation, and Sludbury and his friends retired. As the man with the silver staff informed us that the court was on the point of rising, we retired too, pondering, as we walked away, upon the beautiful spirit of these ancient ecclesiastical laws, the kind and neighbourly feelings they are calculated to awaken, and the strong attachment to religious institutions which they cannot fail to engender. We were so lost in these meditations that we had turned into the street, and run up against a door-post before we recollected where we were walking. On looking upwards to see what house we had stumbled upon, the words, Prerogative Office, written in large characters, met our eye, and as we were in a sight-seeing humour, and the place was a public one, we walked in. The room into which we walked was a long, busy-looking place, partitioned off on either side, into a variety of little boxes, in which a few clerks were engaged in copying or examining deeds. Down the centre of the room were several desks, nearly breast-high, at each of which three or four people were standing, poring over large volumes. As we knew that they were searching for wills, they attracted our attention at once. It was curious to contrast the lazy indifference of the attorney's clerks, who were making a search for some legal purpose, with the air of earnestness and interest which distinguished the strangers to the place, who were looking up the will of some deceased relative, the former pausing every now and then with an impatient yawn, or raising their heads to look at the people who passed up and down the room, the latter stooping over the book and running down column after column of names in the deepest abstraction. There was one little dirty-faced man in a blue apron, who, after a whole morning's search, extending some fifty years back, had just found the will to which he wished to refer, which one of the officials was reading to him, in a low hurried voice, from a thick vellum book with large clasps. It was perfectly evident that the more the clerk read, the less the man with the blue apron understood about the matter. When the volume was first brought down, he took off his hat, smoothed down his hair, smiled with great self-satisfaction, and looked up in the reader's face with the air of a man who had made up his mind to recollect every word he heard. The first two or three lines were intelligible enough, but then the technicalities began, and the little man began to look rather dubious. 
Then came a whole string of complicated trusts, and he was regularly at sea. As the reader proceeded, it was quite apparent that it was a hopeless case, and the little man, with his mouth open and his eyes fixed upon his face, looked on with an expression of bewilderment and perplexity irresistibly ludicrous. A little further on, a hard-featured old man with a deeply wrinkled face was intently perusing a lengthy will, with the aid of a pair of horn spectacles, occasionally pausing from his task and slyly noting down some brief memorandum of the bequests contained in it. Every wrinkle about his toothless mouth and sharp keen eyes told of avarice and cunning. His clothes were nearly threadbare, but it was easy to see that he wore them from choice and not from necessity. All his looks and gestures, down to the very small pinches of snuff which he every now and then took from a little tin canister, told of wealth and penury and avarice. As he leisurely closed the register, put up his spectacles and folded his scraps of paper in a large leathern pocket-book, we thought what a nice hard bargain he was driving with some poverty-stricken legatee, who, tired of waiting year after year until some life interest should fall in, was selling his chance, just as it began to grow most valuable, for a twelfth part of its worth. It was a good speculation, a very safe one. The old man stowed his pocket-book carefully in the breast of his greatcoat, and hobbled away with a leer of triumph. That will had made him ten years younger at the lowest computation. Having commenced our observations, we should certainly have extended them to another dozen of people at least, had not a sudden shutting up and putting away of the worm-eaten old books warned us that the time for closing the office had arrived, and thus deprived us of a pleasure and spared our readers an infliction. We naturally fell into a train of reflection as we walked homewards, upon the curious old records of likings and dislikings, of jealousies and revenges, of affection and defying the power of death, and hatred pursued beyond the grave which these depositories contain, silent but striking tokens, some of them, of excellence of heart and nobleness of soul, melancholy examples, others, of the worst passions of human nature. How many men, as they lay speechless and helpless on the bed of death, would have given worlds but for the strength and power to blot out the silent evidence of animosity and bitterness, which now stands registered against them in Doctor's Commons. End of chapter 8 of Scenes from Sketches by Boz.